Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. Bring me shelter, please. Bring me shelter, I will not harm you. I would shelter you. People would do anything for their families. It could happen to anyone anytime. Somebody in France, somebody in England basically sat down with a ruler and just drew lines on maps. There are many different ethnic and religious groups that have been divided across borders and this has caused a significant amount of conflict. There are a lot of people who need safety. It is really cruel for a country like Australia to have policies that are focused only on pushing people away. What we're seeing is a number of people that remain in a state of limbo. And when non-sustainable land use combines with climate change, the crisis of refugees... I wasn't able to go and play with children. I had to go and really be an adult from a very young age. I think that's something that a lot of migrant children can relate to. Really, it was a dream for me to reunite with my family. I was just praying and hoping that that day will come one day. I think it's very important for people to understand that people have their own dreams as well and they're wanting to change the world with everybody else. Refugee Radio, 855 AM, 3CR. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land who we are broadcasting from, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and respect the elders past, present and emerging and their ongoing struggle. The media in this country, we as Indigenous people know, have censored our right of telling the truth and the truth is what this country is most fearful of, in particular Indigenous truths. Until history is told by the vanquished lens, which is our people telling our story our way, and have the right to be able to incorporate that into a system of learning, well, people are always going to be denied that truth by deceit and lies. When you look at the type of psychological warfare and spiritual warfare that Aboriginal people are caught in, it's not just in the sense of military when they talk about weapons of mass destruction, but you're right, it's in terms of the media and the industry of media as a warfare against our people, and so is religion, I believe, in the Western sense. They're, they're all weapons of mass destruction against our, our people. We need to keep radical voices on air Subscribe now. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 9419 8377. You're listening to Refugee Radio on 3CR 855 AM. We're going to be listening to the second part of episode one from the Wait podcast. This podcast was produced in Indonesia by Mozgan and her family and friends who are refugees who have been stuck in Indonesia due to the Australian government's policies. So we'll be having a listening to that now. This military compound, this was how local authorities were trying to address the problem of hundreds of homeless refugees and asylum seekers in Jakarta. Food and drinking water was being delivered by this Indonesian emergency agency called Dinas Social. But almost every day they were just saying that there will be no water for the next day. I remember being with you in Jakarta when you were sent this video. Food was running out and 
fights had broken out in the military compound. There were these images of this, like, brawl of hungry men fighting over packets of rice. Just 10 days after our visit, refugees and asylum seekers were being evicted from the military compound they've been previously moved to. We really feel for the refugees. We know they're going through a very difficult time right now. They've been through harrowing experiences. The UNHCR representative in Indonesia at the time, Thomas Vargas, turned up and gave a press conference at the site. We're trying our best and we're coordinating and collaborating with the government and other partners to do our best to meet their immediate needs while they're here in Indonesia. The situation here is difficult and so we're trying our best to provide them with assistance to help them manage until we can look at longer term ways where the refugees can help themselves. Where are they? That is up to refugees to be able to decide. We're trying to give them the tools to be able to take care of themselves. UNHCR tried to move everybody by offering them a one-off payment of between 80 up to $160 if those people agreed to not return to that military compound ever again. Did people accept it? Was that helpful? Some did, but hundreds of them refused the payment. Should we pay it for our rent or should we eat it? It's not enough money to find ongoing housing, so these people still didn't have anywhere to go to. They weren't moving. And now they have brought the police and as you can see the fire. Yeah, I can see there's firefighter cars, police cars, TV station, immigration detention cars, and there's police and army everywhere. I went back the next day to observe the situation. They want to kick us out from these facilities by force. We don't want to cause any problem for Indonesian people or the Indonesian government. I can see UNHCR officials here as well. Do they come and talk to you and tell you what their plans are? They do not come inside. They send their security, one of their security, to call the names. We cannot even go to outside the, this place. Yeah, you're right. Right now I'm speaking to you through the bars yeah, through the <laughs> of bar. this compound. We, we are not allowed to go outside so this place. What is our crime? Are we criminal? No. They are treating us like criminals. They are not coming inside as if we are criminals and they are afraid. Their job, they said they are humanitarian organization. It's their job to protect refugees, to help refugees. But you cannot help them if you don't go near them, if you don't listen to them. Just like animals calling us from behind the bars, come here, come here, just like criminals. But I just hope that at least for some of the refugees that I experienced, they are very upset and they are very angry and they turn that anger to UNHCR. I just hope that we will be able to, to try and, and change their perception. The UNHCR representative in Indonesia has changed recently. Anne Maimans, the current representative, I asked her about what these guys were saying. It is not UNHCR that has to control over how many resettlement places there are. It just isn't. <laughs> that's, that's, you know, we are, we are a little uh, factory worker in this somehow on one hand, right? The sense of frustration and anger is very palpable. A lot of frustration and resentment 
specifically focused on UNHCR. I know. I mean, I have met refugees and asylum seekers uh, that have been very frustrated and they're not happy with UNHCR. You know, I am explaining and our colleagues are explaining what the situation is and how we can carry out our work. We are informing them about the process. Right. And then we are also encouraging them to try and make the best out of when they are in Indonesia, try and learn Bahasa, try and and also make the best out of their time here. And, and I know that that sounds a bit patronizing because, of course, they want to be resettled. And then we just answer, OK, you will have to wait. It's not everybody that will be resettled because the problem that we have with resettlement is that there are very few places available for resettlement. There are around 80 million displaced people in the world today. 26 million of them are refugees. Less than the 1% of the refugee population in the world will be able to get resettled. And that is just a reality and the resettlement number of places go down and down. There was a time when UNHCR was going around everywhere in the refugee community to tell us this. Everybody was really shocked and scared. People didn't know what to do, how to take it in not having rights in Indonesia, then how are we supposed to survive all these years of waiting? What do you think about Anne Maiman saying things like refugees should just get along with it and make the most of their time in Indonesia? What I really think can't go in the podcast. But really, like what I really think, I think it's bullshit because we don't have rights. So how are we going to make the best of the situation? We're not allowed to do anything. We are not accepted into the community I even worry about speaking out and, you know, doing the things I do, saying the things I say, because I'm worried how I'll be treated next and either it's going to impact my resettlement or not. And, and because Indonesia is still being perceived as a transit country, like a country where refugees just can wait, that has led to a, a perception that uh, refugees should just wait and there should be no proper programs for them that look at how to use their skills, their talents, so they can contribute to the host country and the host communities that they live in. The solution to the refugee problem is to be resettled, but not all will be resettled. So it's really a, a paradox and a dilemma that we need to address urgently. A paradox and a dilemma. Yeah, we all know this, but who is going to solve the paradox? Even the kids here know about the paradox. As I was leaving Calideris that day as an example, there was a little boy that mistook me for a journalist and asked me the hard questions. Um, I want yeah? I want to talk something with you. Okay. Like, you guys always like coming in here and make you tired and then like, if so many people come to have a news from us, but they are, all of them is coming in here, but there nothing happening with us. Yeah, it's difficult, right? So why are you guys coming in here? To give your voice to the world so people outside can hear your voice. Oh. Is that good? Yeah. We hope that something good happens. Okay. Okay? Yeah. Nice to meet you. What's your name? My name is Shahram. What's your name? Mojgan. Mojgan? Yeah. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you. Thank you. You didn't say who you were. Why not? I thought about it. I thought 
I thought, why didn't I tell him that I'm a refugee too, just like you? But I kind of didn't want to disappoint him because if he knew I'm a refugee, he'd be like, oh, you know, okay, she can't do anything anyways. I felt really bad leaving there because I knew he's there, you know, and I can't do anything for him right now. It's over a year since asylum seekers were moved to that military compound and then evicted. What's going on there now, Mojgan? There are still more than 300 asylum seekers living there. So it's still three times over the capacity of that building. So now they're living there without permission, squatting? Yes, the water and power are getting cut off all the time. The risk of infections was already really high with all of that. What's it like now there with COVID? I've been taking supplies down there and I've been seeing that refugees are mostly self-organizing as much as possible. Uh, But there were two confirmed COVID cases recently. Only a few of the men are in charge of going out and like buying the necessities and coming back into the compound after hand sanitizing and, you know, making sure that they are washing up, cleaning up. They are trying to self-isolate and stay away from each other as much as possible. But how much can you do that in a building with the capacity of 100 people and then there are 300 there? The situation at Calideres, it just felt so chaotic to me. It is chaotic. Responsibility of refugees is now falling to local authorities, but they just really don't know what to do with all of us. Tapi mungkin karena kalau orangnya nggak better di sini, if this isn't their home, is that why people want to go home at the end? Bisa jadi gara-gara itu karena di sini dia transit. They also prefer to send the body back because this person is in transit here, and in in the Middle East, like people keep going to the grave every week to pay respect to the body. So he's also explaining that we get a lot of information from people passing away in the refugee community. It can be up to six people a month. Wow, that's quite a lot, yeah. yeah. Does that seem like a high number of deaths in, I mean, there's probably 4,000 or so, I think, in the Jakarta Chisarua area, maybe more, 6,000? Yeah, that's true. That's that's a quite a high rate. The reason that they refer the bodies to us is first because we are running an NGO here. And so you get these calls and then you pass them on to your brother. Yes, I do that. I pass them to my brother because he's the one with the the connections in immigration and in IUM and he he also knows through our friends a few donors who he have talked to and they know this process because they have witnessed this happen before. So they are willing to pay for some of these bodies to be buried. And my mom is usually the emotional support. <laughs> like she goes with him and tries to calm the family down. Like if it's a mom that their baby has passed away in the hospital or something, then they try to help in any way they can. And also also because your brother has very fluent Bahasa mm. is why he's so good in this role. Yeah, it's quite rare for refugees to have really fluent Bahasa to be able to communicate with all of these different NGOs and organisations and these places, so he, he can do that. He's even insisted on doing this interview in Bahasa, not... Farsi or English. Yes, although he can speak both of them, <laughs> but he's more comfortable with Bahasa because he was very young when we came here and now he's fully Indonesian. 
Sebenarnya itu kita kan di sini nggak ada kerjaan. Terus mereka itu walaupun dia beda negara Afghanistan, Pakistan, Somalia, Ethiopia dari kemanapun kita tuh tujuannya di sini sama. Kita semua pengungsi. That's nice. That's nice of you. I didn't know you were that nice. <laughs> My little brother. <laughs> He's explaining that um well it's better we help each other out because we don't have anything else to do here doesn't matter from which country other people are we are on the same position no matter what country no matter if it's from ethiopia afghanistan or somalia or anywhere else we are all in the same position instead of sitting at home and crying and worrying about the process why is it taking so long why aren't we going anywhere it's better we help each other in any way we can You know that thing that UNHCR told us earlier about less than 1% of refugees around the world being resettled? What about you and your family? There's you and Mohammed and your mum and your dad. A refugee claim was accepted back in 2016 and once that happens, then you'll just have to wait. Resettlement is like this. Basically, UNHCR calls you in for an interview. They will check with you to see whether you are a match with a third country that is maybe going to accept you. Then after that, you'll just have to wait again until they call you in for another interview and then medical checkups and security checkups. It's a very long process until that person can basically get out of this country and go to the third country. Oh, Mojgan, I think I'd be so restless. I mean, what do you do when you're just caught in this in-between waiting? I've always wanted to study. I really want to become a lawyer. And while I've been here waiting, I have been preparing for it. With the help of an international refugee lawyer, I've been learning as much as I could about the law, the international law, the refugee law, and I've been reading some books to even prepare for the admission tests. Finally, at the start of 2019, we had a call from UNHCR for a resettlement interview. How did it feel when you got that call? I was so excited. I was over the moon because it was finally happening. It's March 19, 2019, and it's my first resettlement interview day. I'm on the street of UNHCR by the side door, and it's so nerve-wracking to wait here. I'm so nervous, literally shaking, and my stomach is so painful. This anxiety is just so bad, and seeing tens and tens of people on the street, like with refugees in them, is just not nice at all. It's not helping. So. Yeah, I just have to wait here. See what happens next. They told us that they're gonna go inside at 10. It's 9.16 now. So I'm just gonna wait here and try to breathe and relax. I'm out of the interview. It wasn't an interview, basically. I don't know even where to start from. So, we went down to the basement where they have an area for counseling. They sat us down there and brought all our files with this thick file of papers with red writings on the front. 
and she started explaining that we will we will never get resettled my dad got upset and he was like it's in, it's injustice and it shouldn't be the way it is now there has to be a way I don't know how to deal with my emotions now I'm empty inside of myself I am empty I'm fucked I'm broken I hate it, I hate it, I hate my fucking life. I hate it so much. I wish I could go back. <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> I'm gonna call Nicole and just feeling so lost. Hi. Hey, Nicole, sorry, it was my mom. She said my dad, my dad not at home. So he just took off? He said he wants to go ban himself in front of you and That's the last thing you said. <sighs> He's not going to do it, right? I don't know. I really don't know. He was really mad. He was really upset. He was crying. Oh, Mojgan, I'm so I, sorry. I, I cannot think clearly at all. I have to call Yonicio and warn them because my dad got the, the, the benzene, the gasoline, and he's on a bike. He videoed himself. He sent it to us. And he's on the way to you next year. I need to call him immediately. You've been listening to The Wait. I'm Mojgan Marafizadeh. I'm Nicole Kirby. Next episode. Creeping past the security guards that were falling asleep on their bellies. They were like really drunk. But... They didn't know that there was still security yeah. outside. The securities outside saw that these people are trying to run out. The securities came in with guns and everything. The Wait was written and produced by Nicole Kirby and co-hosted by me, Mojgan Marafizadeh. Michael Green is the co-writer and supervising producer. Sound design and mixing by Beck Fari. The Wait was produced in conjunction with The Guardian and first aired on their Full Story News podcast, with editorial support from Miles Martignoni at The Guardian Australia. Support for this project was provided by the Walkley Public Fund and the Judith Nielsen Institute Freelance Grant for Asian Journalism. A big thank you to everyone who shared their story for this series. And thanks also to Tessa Rex, Jem Rommel, Trish Cameron, Andre Dow, Patrick Tumeau and Ben Doherty. Theme music by Emma Davis. Thanks for listening to this series. If you liked this episode, leave us a rating or review. There are also photos, videos and more information on our website, theweightpodcast.com. Hi, this is Rafiv Ziada and you're listening to 3CR, pro-Palestinian, happily proud radio. We've got a common enemy. The same government that locks up these refugees just behind us here at the Park Hotel is the same government that's going for our rights, trying to attack the very limited gains that casuals have. And so when union activists take up the cause of refugees amongst their fellow workers, it's not an act of charity. It's about building workers' united self-defence mechanism, understanding that we're all part of the same battle. Subscribe to 3CR in 2021. Feed Radical Radio. Subscribe today. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. 
or call the station on 94198377. You're in Refugee Radio on 3CR and you've just been listening to the second part of the Wait podcast from episode one. And you can see the details about that on the 3CR page when you look up Refugee Radio as well. We'll be listening to more of the episodes in the coming weeks. But to remind you that it is the end of Subscriber Drive in February this week and, well, today. So just remember to subscribe to 3CR. You can go to the website 3cr.org.au and look up how to subscribe there. Of course, heaps of unique voices and stories and heaps of diversity and radical news on 3CR. So support the station, did it really hard in 2020, and so we really need support from community now. And we wanted to give you some news as well that Tanika, who is the youngest child of Nads and Priya, and also her sister Kobika, who the Tamil family who have been locked up on Christmas Island for quite a long time now, uh, that she has won her federal court case, which means that she wasn't given procedural fairness and her case was not assessed. Of course, it doesn't mean that they actually get out of detention, though let's hope that will be the case. It's just not an automatic thing. So keep yourself updated with the family. You can look up the Tamil Refugee Council and also listen to the Tamil shows on 3CR as well. And when we have updates, we'll mention them. And we're going to finish the show with a song from the group, the Serene Group, with a letter from an exile. So we're going to be playing this track for the Palestinian poet Morud Bogotti. Uh, he died recently and he was a Palestinian poet. And he also lived most of his life basically in exile as a refugee. He's a really known, well-known figure in the Palestinian community. And also also he has a book called I Saw Ramallah. Uh, that's where he is from in Palestine. So you can also read that book if you want to find it online or around. Uh, so this song by the Sabrine Group is going to be played for him.
G'day, my name is Margie Thorpe. You are listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 on your dial. 